0: My name is Amina Malik, and I am an oculoplastic surgeon at Houston Methodist Hospital, and I'm going to be discussing thyroid eye disease and managing chronic TED. So let's start with a brief review of Rundle's curve. So this was a curve that was made to help us better understand the disease course of thyroid eye disease. These patients typically follow two curves in this disease course where they have an active phase during which time they tend to have more inflammatory signs um, and symptoms. And after this, it tends to burn out and reach what we call the stable or inactive or chronic phase. Um, A lot of different terminology for how you wanna call that stable phase. This disease can be further classified with a variety of classification systems. And why do we need these classification systems? Well, they help us to first make a diagnosis. They also help us with assessing disease severity, which will then help guide formulate our treatment plans. And really an ideal classification system really should look at both the severity of the disease as well as the inflammatory activity of the disease. There are several classification systems that have been described for thyroid eye disease including the no specs the clinical activity score the visa and the ugogo severity scale now beginning with the no specs this was described in 1977 and this was really the original um, grading classification system and this looks at several different items including the presence of physical signs or symptoms um, if there's only signs or if there's soft tissue involvement proptosis extraocular muscle involvement corneal involvement, or sight loss. But it doesn't necessarily give disease activity. Um, It's really limited more to the severity. And so that's where the clinical activity score uh, came into play in 1989. Um, but this can be limited as it really looks at activity and not as much into the severity of the disease. And the clinical activity score is really based on the signs of acute inflammation, including the presence of pain or pressure behind the eye um, that can worsen with movement, redness of the eyelids and the conjunctiva, chemosis or swelling of the conjunctiva, uh, eyelid inflammation. And on follow-up, these uh, measures are looked at again to determine the disease activity and anything greater than three is considered to be active on this CAS score. Now the VISA score uh, came out came about in 2006, and this is really based on both symptoms and signs, and it assesses four severity parameters: V for the vision, I for the inflammation or congestion. S for serbizimus and motility, and A for appearance and exposure. And each feature is considered and graded independently, and a global severity grade is given based on the sum of each of these involved systems. And after the VISA uh, score came out, the UGOGO severity scale emerged in 2008. And this really uh, was to help manage our patients with Graves' orbitopathy uh, and classifying them both uh, based on disease severity, um, and looking at things such as quality of life and vision loss, and is classified as either, either mild, moderate, severe, or sight-threatening, taking into account all of those things. So let's discuss a case study kind of highlighting the, the chronic phase of thyroid eye disease. Here we have a 37-year-old female who presented with a two-year history of bilateral eye bulging and dryness. She did have a past medical history of Graves' disease, which was diagnosed five years prior to presentation. She was treated with radioactive iodine three years prior, and her thyroid levels were normal. She had a clinical activity score of two based on some eye redness, as well as some upper lid edema. So at this point, we have a patient who has chronic and stable TED. So the question becomes, how are we going to manage this patient? Well, if we go back to our Rundles curve, Uh, we remember that uh, the treatment is very much dependent on where these patients fall under the curve. Uh, So depending on if they are mild, moderate, or having severe disease, there are different treatments that we can offer our patients. So this is an example of a patient with mild TED. You can just see some uh, subtle lid edema and some redness, um, but on closer examination, she did have some proptosis. And with patients, With mild TED without significant or severe symptoms, observation is often reasonable with a wait and watch approach um, because many of these patients can experience spontaneous resolution of their eye symptoms. It's very important to maintain euthyroidism um, and this often involves co-management with uh, endocrinologist um, to make sure that the thyroid levels are stable. If any of our patients are going to be undergoing radioactive iodine treatment, it's important to consider steroid prophylaxis to help decrease the risk of their eye disease worsening during the treatment. In addition, smoking cessation is very important, and this is recommended in all Graves patients regardless of the presence of TED. It is well known that tobacco use can worsen thyroid eye disease severity, um, and it can also make patients refractory to treatment, so very important to counsel all of our patients on this. Symptomatic management is also very important. Um, frequent use of lubricants, artificial tears, as well as nocturnal gel uh, or eye masks can be useful in these patients whose eyes don't close, where they have lagophthalmos, which can worsen their dry eye symptoms. Cholesterol management. So there is emerging data in terms of cholesterol management in TED in retrospective analysis that has shown that the use of statin can decrease the risk of TED in newly diagnosed Uh, patients with Graves' disease. But further prospective studies are needed to establish the role of statins in TED therapy. And what about selenium supplementation? Well, large, randomized European trials have found both an improved quality of life and ocular involvement up to 12 months with decreased rate of progression to more advanced TED. Uh, And it's really unclear whether this is applicable to um, selenium-sufficient areas. So a little more research is needed to determine that. And with regards to vitamin D supplementation, retrospective case control studies have showed that serum vitamin D levels were significantly lower in patients with TED compared to patients with Graves' disease without TED. Uh, So there may also be a role for vitamin D supplementation as part of these patients' treatment. Now here's an example of a patient with more moderate to severe TED, where we can see more of the redness, the proptosis, and the swelling. Um, So let's talk about what the management would be for patients with moderate, or severe thyroid disease. So steroids can be given, and typically IV steroids are more effective than oral based on studies. Um, there are side effects that need to be considered when we're prescribing patients' steroids. Studies have shown a significant decrease in the clinical activity score with use of IV steroids, but not as much of an improvement as seen in patients' ocular motility, double vision, or proptosis. Now, steroid sparing immunosuppressants can also be used um, along with the steroids and this can decrease the amount needed. And this has shown superior outcomes than steroids alone. Um, But this has not shown to have significant effects on proptosis and or double vision. Now, orbital radiation in combination with steroids can be particularly useful for ocular motility problems and double vision, but not proptosis. And studies have really shown mixed efficacy. Now there are several biologics available for patients with moderate or severe active Ted, and this includes rituximab, tocilizumab, and tepratubumab. But these, um, the rituximab and tocilizumab are off-label, whereas tepratubumab is an on-label agent. So rituximab is a monoclonal antibody that targets CD20. And this is given via two infusions, uh, thousand milligrams every two weeks and there were randomized clinical trials done comparing rituximab to placebo, and there was really no benefit seen. Um, There were also studies looking at rituximab versus IV methylprednisolone that did show a reduction in the CAS, no disease recurrence, and a reduced need for surgery, uh, but they had different patient populations. But overall, with the rituximab, there was no significant difference in the proptosis, double vision, or quality of life. Now, is a monoclonal antibody targeted against the interleukin-6 receptor. And we have data based off of a randomized clinical trial out of Spain. And in this study, improvement of proptosis in a CAS score of less than 3 was not significant at 40 weeks follow-up. So, um, no significant long-term improvement in proptosis, double vision, or quality of life um, shown here. Now, Tepretubumab is the first and only FDA-approved treatment for patients with TED. And this targets insulin-like growth factor 1 receptor, and it blocks its activation signaling. And the efficacy endpoints from their phase 2 and phase 3 trials uh, showed that there were 82.9% of patients that were proptosis responders versus 9.5% of the placebo. And 69.7% of patients who were treated with this were diplopia responders and 78% were overall both proptosis and clinical activities for responders. So this study showed significant improvement in the quality of life measures as well, including vision and appearance. So going back to original uh, Rundle's curve, uh, more research has emerged that is guiding us uh, in terms of our treatment for these patients. You know, traditionally, we only did uh, rehabilitative s- surgery during the stable or chronic phase, and that's really where we targeted um, the treatment once we were there. But research has shown that there is actually insulin-like growth factor overexpression found in the non-inflammatory fibrotic uh, phase of TED, suggesting that there is still ongoing potential um, inflammation even during the later phases of this disease. And this led to the FDA label uh, being expanded for teproputumab to be uh, a treatment option for patients with TED, really regardless of their disease activity or phase. Now, when it comes to tepratubumab treatment, patient selection is very important. Uh, There are several things to be aware of, including hearing impairment as a potential adverse effect. So generally, pre-treatment baseline audiograms are performed in these patients, and uh, prescribers can consider repeating this testing mid and post-treatment or if new symptoms develop. Additionally, uh, prescribers need to be careful in women of childbearing age, as contraception is required during and for six months after treatment. And menstrual irregularities have also been seen in patients undergoing treatment with tefertupamab. Patients who are pre-diabetic or diabetic, uh, it's important to check a baseline hemoglobin A1C and perhaps considering delay of treatment if it's greater than nine. Important to counsel these patients about glucose monitoring as hyperglycemia is a known risk um, and educating them on the symptoms of hyperglycemia so they can uh, be aware of this potential side effect. Now, um, other side effects were also seen in the studies, including muscle spasms, nausea, alopecia, diarrhea, fatigue. Uh, We talked about the hyperglycemia and hearing impairment, discusia, headache, and dry skin. Um, Most of these symptoms were mild and manageable, and the majority of patients did complete the therapy despite the presence of side effects. Uh, But again, important to discuss with our patients when uh, selecting pertubumab as our treatment option. Also important to exercise caution in patients with inflammatory bowel disease or Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. As we know, uh, therapy with this drug can exacerbate that disease. So getting back to our patient with the chronic inactive TED with a CAS of two, she did undergo treatment with eight infusions of tepratubimab, and this is her after where you can see um, quite significant improvement a four and five millimeter reduction in proptosis, her CAS score improved. She had resolution of the lid swelling. Um, Her conjunctival redness had resolved. uh, So she was quite happy uh, after this uh, course of therapy. Now, when we talk about surgical treatment, um, this is still an important um, uh, option for us, for patients who have thyroid eye disease. Uh, And typically this involves uh, three different types of surgeries, including orbital decompression, strabismus surgery, and eyelid surgery. And typically we do this in uh, that particular order. Uh, here's an example demonstrating that in a patient who has, um, you can see the obvious left-sided proptosis and ocular misalignment and eye redness. and she was treated initially with orbital decompression. Um, and after that uh, she also had strabismus surgery. and we want to do it in that way because after orbital decompression the eye can shift uh, position in the socket and that can change the double vision. so we try not to do it at the same time. And after we do strabismus surgery, it can also change the eyelid position due to shared fascial attachments between the eyelid elevators and some of the muscles that move our eyes. So you can see after her two surgeries, the lid retraction uh, seemed to be worse on the right side. And this was her after retraction repair of the right upper lid um, and doing quite well compared to where she started out after those three surgeries. So to summarize our current treatment algorithm, it really comes back to the main ophthalmic manifestations. So if the predominant uh, manifestations are diplopia or proptosis, and if there's no contraindication to tepratubumab and the patient has access, then tepratubumab would be um, the treatment or recommendation. Now, if there was a contraindication to tepratubumab in this group, uh, and they did have double vision, they could consider treatment with orbital radiation or or oral steroids. Uh, If there was no evolving double vision, they could consider treatment with IV steroids uh, with the potential addition of mycophenolate. Now, if the main ophthalmic Symptoms are more inflammatory in nature. Uh, and if there's no contraindication to IV steroids, uh, then treatment options could include IV steroids with mycophenolate or tepritubumab. And a lot of this is going to depend on access, um, insurance approval, and discussion with our patients about the options. Um, Now, if there is a contraindication to IV steroids, uh, the choice really is also gonna depend based on the adverse effects and access to therapy. And those options can include tepratubumab, tocilizumab or rituximab. Thank you.